Hello, my name is Albert Yan. I'm currently serving as the Chief of the Section of Dermatology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm also a professor at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. The following program, atopic dermatitis in the child zero to two years of age, mild to moderate, is approved for 0.5 CME, CNE, CPE, and AAPA credits. You can download a PDF of the presentation under the event resources tab on the left side of your screen under the headshot. You'll be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. The program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, which is an HMP company. The program is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer. The learning objectives today include discussing atopic dermatitis treatment approaches specific to the ages zero to two for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, to optimally integrate into clinical practice the biologics and small molecule inhibitory agents recently approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis based on efficacy and safety data, to effectively manage treatment side effects, and to outline safety and efficacy data for emerging treatments for atopic dermatitis. So welcome to atopic dermatitis in the infant and young toddler. During the session, I'm gonna discuss issues that are related specifically to this age group and focus on mild to moderate presentations. Now, as you might expect, there are limited data in this age group, and there are a few drugs that are specifically FDA approved for these young kids. Um, but I'll provide an update based on data that exists and informed by my own clinical experience on the subject. And I'll highlight some fascinating speculation on factors that predispose to atopic dermatitis and whether specific interventions might alter some of these predispositions to atopy. In terms of disclosures, I have served as a consultant for Cutania, Pfizer, Regeneron, Sanofi, and Verica. So let's start with some of the clinical manifestations of atopic dermatitis in the infant. Experienced clinicians like yourselves know that atopic dermatitis is readily recognized in the infant. Um, you see the characteristic areas of erythema, scaling, and excoriations that are manifestations of the itching that these kids have. And what's interesting about the infant is the facial predilection and more generalized involvement that you see in kids with atopic dermatitis in this early age group. Although you'll see these more generalized presentations, kids can also have some of the more characteristic and typical manifestations around flexural crease areas, such as the antecubital and popliteal spaces. But to highlight, infants with this early onset presentation will usually have more facial involvement than older kids and adults. And it's often localized um, in certain areas, but often you'll see a more generalized pattern the other important thing to recognize in early onset atopic dermatitis, particularly among infants, is that there are syndromic associations with food allergies. Although food allergies are conditions that affect a minority of patients who have atopic dermatitis, there is an important subset where 
uh, you'll want to be able to recognize these. Food allergies in children, aside from skin manifestations like urticaria or sometimes uh, more severe atopic dermatitis, may also present with nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain leading to problems with failure to thrive, and lethargy and dehydration. Two of the main syndromes that you should be aware of include eosinophilic esophagitis, which manifests with these, along with symptoms of dysphagia and reflux, as well as FPIES, or food protein intolerance enterocolitis syndrome. And this is a syndrome that, like EE, presents with uh, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, uh, but the features are often severe enough to show up with uh, dehydration, lethargy, and failure to thrive as well. These children oftentimes have circulating eosinophilia, and they may have variable uh, amounts of atopic dermatitis, but many of these kids can present with um, a range from mild to moderate or moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. These children with eczema often resemble having a stomach flu, and uh, the difference between an isolated a stomach flu episode, and these syndromes is that these are often chronic and intermittent and happen recurrently in response to exposures to triggering foods. One of the more exciting developments with regard to food allergies suggests that um, there is a paradigm shift occurring with regard to how we approach early exposures to foods. After years of uh, physicians and clinicians recommending prophylactic avoidance of foods at risk for allergy, we're now seeing that early exposures to foods may be important in reducing that risk. One of the principal studies that highlighted this was the LEAP study that looked at a fairly large number of infants who were randomized to receive or avoid peanuts until they were five. And these kids started off either as skin prick negative or skin prick positive. If you look at the chart here, the gist of it is that by five years of age, whether you were skin prick negative or skin prick positive, early consumption and exposure to peanut allergy significantly reduced the risk of later peanut allergy sensitization. You can see that avoidance, uh, the avoidance subset had significantly higher rates of peanut sensitization compared to those that consumed it. This suggests that early intervention with food allergen exposure is important in developing tolerance. And early exposures to peanut allergen significantly reduces subsequent peanut allergy, even in those with evidence of early sensitization. So this is a paradigm shift. Whether cutaneous application offers any benefit has yet to be determined, however. Other factors may also play a role in food allergy sensitization. As you see here in this particular paper, this highlights research identifying that Staph aureus colonization plays a significant role in engendering food allergy, independent of eczema severity. In this particular case, the presence of Staph aureus in the nares or on the skin of those who had eczema significantly increased the odds of having food allergies related to egg and especially peanut, 
even with intentional exposure. So this indicates that the food allergy story may be a little more complicated than originally expected. Let's move on to atopic dermatitis age-based phenotype and highlight the fact that depending on when your eczema starts will determine to some degree your risk for atopy and your risk for having persistent disease. In this particular paper um, in which I participated, we uh, studied um, phenotypes based on age and their risks related to um, atopic comorbidities. We used the peer database, which involved over 4,000 subjects with atopic dermatitis um, between the ages of two and 17 years of age. And the kids had a relatively long median follow-up of about seven and a half years. And we looked at whether or not um, atopic dermatitis uh, at different ages was associated with later risk for asthma and seasonal allergies. What this paper highlighted is the fact that uh, having early onset eczema correlated with a greater risk, relative risk for comorbidities such as asthma when compared with kids who had atopic dermatitis starting at later ages. Now we used these particular age groups based on secondary analyses to kind of separate out um, different groups that, um, that were based in part on uh, our clinical experience, but also based in part on differentiating um, groups of patients who were more or less likely to have filaggrin null mutation and um, separated atopic dermatitis into kids less than two, kids three to seven, and kids eight to 17. We then use this to look at a persistence of eczema in, these, in the same database. And what you see here is that kids who have atopic dermatitis early in terms of their onset had a greater risk for having um, uh, atopic uh, comorbidities as well as more persistent disease. This can be seen graphically here, where kids who started off with their eczema early on uh, tended to have more persistent disease as you followed them into their teenage years and into young adulthood when compared with those with later onset disease, which tended to uh, remit earlier. Now, there's been lots of interest in defining atopic dermatitis phenotypes based on natural history as well. And in this paper by Rodui and colleagues out of Zurich, um, they studied using uh, statistical modeling, uh, these natural history um, patterns for atopic dermatitis. As you can see here, they were able to identify four latent classes. You can see two forms of early onset atopic dermatitis, one that is transient and remits earlier, and one that tends to persist into the uh, school age period. And then there's a later onset 
form of atopic dermatitis that tended to occur after two years of age. The fourth class had very transient uh, atopic dermatitis that tended to remit very quickly. Those at highest risk of having other atopic diseases using this model tended to associate with those with early onset disease. So the earlier your eczema starts and the more persistent it tends to be, the more likely you are to have other atopic comorbidities like asthma or sensitivity to inhalant allergies. Early transient forms of eczema in this model were also associated with a greater risk of food allergies. The late onset, which turns out to correlate with our mid-childhood category that we described earlier, uh, were associated more with allergic rhinitis. So what's helpful about this type of modeling is it's starting to identify particular patterns of eczema and how they associate with risk for other types of allergic comorbidities, as you can see here. The Potternoster study out of the United Kingdom also highlighted two birth cohort studies um, that were combined in this uh, statistical analysis. And in their modeling, they identified six different patterns that you can see here. But the gist of this is that they were able to find an early onset group, a mid onset group around uh, five to six years of age in terms of its peak, and then a later onset group um, that also tended to resolve. Most of the patients actually fell into a transient group with um, rapidly uh, resolving or remitting atopic dermatitis. They specifically looked at associations with uh, genetic mutations and found that early and mid-onset forms of atopic dermatitis were more likely to be associated with genetic mutations, whereas with atopic comorbidities, the, um, the early onset disease tended to be more strongly associated uh, with asthma and elevated IgE at later ages. These next couple of slides summarize what we've just talked about, that um, there is increased interest in looking at atopic dermatitis and subcategorizing or stratifying by age and trying to see whether or not um, children at these various age uh, brackets have a greater or lesser risk for atopic comorbidities and persistent disease. Two of the more recent studies highlight the fact that early onset disease is um, more likely to be associated with phalagrin mutations and more severe atopic dermatitis and more persistent disease. So to summarize, atopic dermatitis by age of onset, younger ages are associated with greater risk of these mutations, as well as asthma, food allergies, disease severity, and difficulty with control, as well as more persistent disease, whereas older onset uh, of atopic dermatitis tends to reduce the odds of more persistent disease. For those of you who have been following the hygiene hypothesis, evidence continues to mount that increased exposure to microbes seems to be associated with a decreased risk of atopy. The Swedish group led by Hesselmar uh, investigated 
um, exposures to dirty pacifiers that have fallen on the ground and having them just uh, wiped off or sucked by the parents and placed back in their kids' mouths versus those that get sterilized or washed and found that dirty pacifiers um, were associated with a, a significantly lower risk of asthma and eczema, with the odds ratios being about 0.12 for asthma and 0.37 for eczema. They also identified that uh, hand washing, which is less effective at, at um, eliminating microbes, um, was more likely to be associated with protection against later, later allergic sensitization when compared with machine dishwashing. Those who had their dishes in the home washed by hand had a significantly lower rate of later allergic sensitization in terms of atopic dermatitis and asthma when compared with those who had home machine dishwashing. Um, the reduction was about 50% for atopic dermatitis and about 75% for asthma. Thumb sucking, nail biting, um, behaviors that would likely introduce more of a microbial load were also associated with protection against atopic sensitization. And in this study highlighted by the New England Journal of Medicine, um, they looked at um, industrialized farming compared to traditional farming among the Amish and found that um, increased exposures to microbial endotoxins, a marker or proxy for exposure to microbes in general, um, was also strongly associated with protection against atopy. And those who had um, exposure to industrial farming and uh, lower exposure to microbes had a four to six higher rate of asthma and allergic sensitization. So, since we don't always choose where we live, whether we bite our fingernails or um, suck on our fingers, um, let's look at some other possible early interventions for atopic dermatitis. Specifically, there's been a lot of interest in early emollient use, starting to use moisturizers in kids that are as young as one to three months of age. And this particular study by uh, Eric Simpson and his colleagues in the UK and the US looked at 124 infants, randomized them to receive early exposure to emollients or no emollients. And um, this, this was started within about three weeks of age and continued for up to six months. Overall, they found a cumulative incidence of atopic dermatitis that was about half in the emollient group compared to those not using emollients on a regular basis. This highlighted the possibility that a simple, low-cost intervention could be safe and easy to do in at-risk infants, um, but needed validation in larger studies with longer-term follow-up. It also raised some questions about whether there was an optimal specific moisturizer or emollient and what the optimal timing would be. Early emollient studies since the Simpson study have been conflicting. And right now we're still trying to figure out um, some of the answers to these questions and whether or not early intervention with emollients is likely to pan out. 
but the potential is there that some studies suggest it may be possible to reduce the incidence of atopic dermatitis through a simple intervention by um, implementing early use of emollients in at-risk kids. Now let's talk more specifically about atopic skin care and bathing practices. This tends to be a hotly debated topic among those of us who uh, practice uh, clinical medicine. We can generally agree that a mild gentle soap or cleanser is beneficial, that it should be pH balanced, but the duration and frequency are oftentimes uh, debated. Now most um, soaps, traditional soaps, botanical soaps oftentimes have a high pH and they can alkalinize the skin and disrupt the skin barrier, which tends to maintain a normal pH around 5.5. Um, of the emollients that are out there, um, these are some of the more common ones and they range from uh, lighter lotion to heavier ointments. In general, most uh, emollients at this point um, are uh, usually acidic and will help promote um, a barrier improvement when used properly. There's been some debate about bathing for eczema. The, um, what the dry school suggests decreased bathing may be more beneficial for reducing barrier dysfunction, whereas kids um, who are uh, following the wet school are asked to bathe more often to reduce allergen contact and reduce potential infection risk. Now, what data is there for bathing? There's not that much. Uh, Larry Eichenfield uh, reported on evaluating um, bathing uh, frequency by bathing alone or use of a moisturizer uh, immediately after or delaying use of an emollient and found that those who tended to bathe without using emollients tended to have lower water content in their skin. Those who didn't bathe and used emollients tended to have higher water content in their skin. However, other studies have had conflicting data when comparing kids who are randomized to bathe daily versus twice a week um, for a period of two weeks. And in this particular study done by Petrullis and published in Clinical Pediatrics showed that at least from the standpoint of eczema scoring using the SCORAD, that there was no significant difference between these two groups, whether they bathe more or less often. So the bottom line is to follow a consistent approach, make it simple for the kids and their families. In our population here in Philadelphia, we tend to bathe the kids less during the winter time and more often during the summer uh, to help provide um, relief for the kids. Um, we tend to favor reducing allergen exposure by bathing them more often in the summertime and less often in the winter when they tend to stay covered. Now, one of the problems in infants is that while many can be effectively managed adequately with topical uh, medications, oftentimes uh, flare-ups can result from superinfection. I wanna highlight a few specific scenarios where this might happen. Here, you're seeing a child present with crops of blisters and pustules um, on areas of pre-existing eczema. And kids like this, where they have 
significantly more facial involvement oftentimes, uh, fever, cellulitis, may have secondary infection, not with staph, but with group A strep or strep pyogenes. These patients tend to have more severe involvement. Um, they're often thicker looking. They may have uh, facial and periorbital involvement and are often uh, times um, more at risk for needing hospitalization. Patients with group A strep can often look very similar to those with uh, HSV infection. And so it's important to culture, particularly because in areas where trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole is often used as empiric therapy, uh, group A strep is not adequately covered by that antibiotic. Patients like this who develop sudden flare-ups of their atopic dermatitis in pre-existing areas, um, as you see here with areas of thick crusting, punched out erosions, are more characteristic of viral superinfection. In these two cases, these are related to HSV or herpes simplex virus superinfection. In patients like this, where you would work them up for HSV and find negative HSV testing, concentrations on the hands, feet, and around the mouth, these would be examples of superinfection from both of these are examples of viral superinfection, or what's known as Kaposi's varicelliform eruption. HSV is the most common, but enterovirus and other types of viruses can also cause more severe uh, sudden flare-ups of atopic dermatitis. In cases like this, we'll temporarily discontinue topical steroids or calcineurin inhibitors. For those who are sick, we'll consider admission for supportive care and intravenous antibiotics and antivirals if they're ill. Although if they're caught fairly early, outpatient management may be possible. In cases like this, anti-staph antibiotics are oftentimes beneficial because of secondary infection with staph. And then we'll restart topical therapy once we've gotten uh, the condition under better control, usually within two to three days of stabilization. Bleach baths are oftentimes incorporated as part of the skincare regimen for atopic dermatitis. There's reasonably good data to suggest that it helps to reduce inflammation in the skin when used at these low concentrations. Um, and it provides some decolonization of staph and MRSA as well. The typical recipe that we use for dilute bleach is between one-eighth to one-half of a cup for a 30-gallon tub of water and shoot for a target concentration of about 0.01 to 0.025% of sodium hypochlorite. We'll typically bathe the kids for about five to 10 minutes once or twice a week, and this can help reduce the tendency for atopic flares. What about the use of antihistamines? Parents oftentimes ask about whether an antihistamine would be helpful. Systematic reviews on the subject suggest that there's not a great role for use of, of antihistamines in atopic dermatitis um, to relieve the itching of atopic derm. However, in my own clinical experience, we'll oftentimes use this as a nighttime treatment uh, to help reduce um, the itching through uh, soporific dosing 
to get the kids to be able to sleep at night. However, you should know that systematic reviews and evidence-based uh, randomized controlled trials don't show a significant benefit during the day. All right, let's focus on topical steroid use next. Um, this is an area that um, you all likely have a lot of experience with. And I'm going to highlight some of the issues that are particularly important to know about infants. Um, infants, because of their large body surface area relative to their weight, are at significantly higher risk for systemic absorption of topical steroids through the skin. Fortunately, most of the topical steroids that we use in infants and young toddlers are in the uh, six to seven range in terms of their vasoconstrictor assay rating. And these lower potency topical steroids, hydrocortisone, alclometasone, desonide, uh, tend to have a relatively low rate of HPAFIS suppression in studies that have been submitted to the FDA for review. In fact, many of these show no evidence of abnormalities on, um, on stim testing um, and suggest that they're relatively safe to use in this population when appropriately supervised. However, stronger topical steroids when used in infants and younger children, such as the class ones and twos, like clobetazole, um, betamethasone dipropionate, show high rates of HPX suppression, even when used for short periods of time, such as two to four weeks. And documented relatively high rates of HPX suppression have been seen in patients um, using high potency topical steroids. Um, in this lower age group context. So that's why we tend to avoid using the class ones and twos or higher potency topical steroids in infants and young children. So in terms of topical steroid use, they're still recommended as first line for atopic dermatitis. An appropriate strength should be used uh, for the degree of atopic dermatitis being treated. I tend to avoid adverse effects by supervising the use of these medications and limiting the amount prescribed. So I'll ask them to bring their tubes back in so I can see how much they're going through and make sure that they're using it to the right degree and that they have the specific um, topicals that I'm recommending. I'll supervise them if they're using low potency topical steroids about every six months. I'll see them more often if they're requiring frequent mid-potency use. And then for the higher potency topicals, I'll tend to see them every month if they really need it um, in this uh, infant population to make sure that uh, we're not running into any problems related to frequent use. I'll also limit the amount prescribed, limit it to one or two refills at most, and then monitor the tubes and build in breaks during treatment so that they don't have to use it all the time and we'll educate the families about warning signs and have them know what to look for in terms of hypopigmentation and um, thinning of the skin. In terms of maintenance therapy, there are several different approaches that I take in terms of managing kids who have atopic dermatitis that tends to recur often. This is one of the things that many clinicians will see is that um, the families will be able to get their atopic dermatitis under good control, but it then tends to recurrently flare. And so we're going to talk briefly about some approaches to doing that. 
to manage them so that they can uh, manage things better at home. I'll provide them with a therapeutic ladder, tell them that when the skin is dry, they can use an emollient. When it starts getting itchy, we'll rotate in a low-potency topical steroid. And once it starts flaring and getting red, we'll need to escalate to a mid-potency or higher-potency topical steroid for a few weeks and then reassess. And how do you choose a topical steroid? For the really young kids who are infants and young toddlers, we'll tend to avoid halogenated steroids primarily because that tends to extend and prolong the half-life on the skin and increase the risk of potential adverse effects. So we'll usually favor non-halogenated steroids where possible. Um, that being said, um, generic choices um, on many insurance formularies may not allow us as much latitude. So in general, what I'll do is develop a list for parents of the low, mid, and in some cases, higher potency topical steroids that will have them use um, when they need to deal with their flare-ups. Now, one of the things that we always worry about is that when you have widespread atopic dermatitis, even when it's relatively mild, you'll be using a lot of medicine all over. And so there may be instances where um, use of non-steroidal alternatives may be beneficial. Topical calcineurin inhibitors and topical PDE4 inhibitors may be reasonable options, although both of these are currently um, FDA approved only for children two and older. Pimacrolimus and tacrolimus come in various formulations. They're non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that are steroid sparing and are safe for use on the face as well as uh, genital areas. And they're often indicated as a second line therapy, primarily in older kids. Um, I will tend to use these off-label in younger kids when I need a steroid-sparing alternative, but I am limited by the availability of these through insurance formularies where um, they may not be um, approved in children under two. Um, when I do have to talk about prescribing these, um, I'll highlight the box warning labels on them, um, but reassure them that um, the uh, signals that we're seeing for cancer uh, were primarily in animal models that were predisposed to malignancies, um, that immunosuppression at those high levels is more likely the culprit in terms of causing the problems, and that use at uh, low levels and topical formulations don't tend to carry a significant risk, and um, that infants using topical medicines in small amounts um, in a supervised fashion should do fine, as long as they don't eat the medicine out of the tube. Intense surveillance programs that have been monitoring TCIs um, have not shown a significant signal in terms of malignancy. And so again, that's reassuring since these um, registries have now been active for over 10 years. Topical chrysoboral ointment is a PDE4 inhibitor. Um, this is a relatively new small molecule PDE4 inhibitor that reduces inflammation through a targeted pathway. It's rapidly absorbed and converted into inactive metabolites. It's been shown to be highly effective for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis and works pretty well, um, in my experience, for managing kids with, um, with mild to moderate atopic derm. Studies show that it significantly reduces um, atopic dermatitis scores 
in terms of the global assessments as well as um, easy scores. And it's really good at reducing itch relatively quickly in patients who receive it. My only concern about it is that a small subset of patients aren't able to tolerate it due to burning and stinging, but the majority of patients seem to be able to tolerate its use um, as a steroid sparing alternative. So to summarize, um, when treating babies and toddlers for atopic dermatitis, it's important to institute an atopic skincare plan to provide some recommendations for topical anti-inflammatory therapy, treat any associated bacterial colonization or superinfection, and then develop programs for flares and programs for maintenance. Thank you very much for taking the time to spend uh, with me here uh, learning about atopic dermatitis in the young infant.